Hi, I'm Karen Mayberry, the co-founder and CMO of Trim, and I'm proud to work in cannabis because cannabis universally makes people happy, and that's pretty impactful globally. Hey, I'm Matt, the CEO and co-founder of Trim, and I'm proud to work in cannabis because cannabis is an amazing plant, and I get to work with some of the most amazing folks in this industry. Uh, makes my job exciting every day. Everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Proud to Work in Cannabis podcast. Today, I'm very excited to have both Karen and Matt Mayberry, the co-founders of Trim. Trim is on a mission to help cannabis growers thrive by lowering the cost of production and increasing product consistency at scale, which has never been needed more in the cannabis industry than right now, given that we potentially are in the most cash-strapped industry of all time. So we thought it was a great time to have both Karen and Matt on. And also, I've always wanted to talk uh, about what it's like to work with your spouse because my fiancé tells me that if we ever try to start a business together, we will break up. So I can't wait to hear more about that as well. We'll talk about state of the industry, growers, a little bit about marketing, um, and, and we'll cover a lot here. So thanks for tuning in. Karen and Matt, welcome to our podcast. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Stoked to be here. And it's and and you said that it's an absolute borderline tornado in the Bay Area right now. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty wild. We have a lot of uh, horizontal rain and plants that are supposed to be vertical that are probably at like forty five degrees right now. How's your new puppy handling the storm? She's sleeping. She has no idea. She doesn't like going outside <laughs> in it, but she likes being inside. <laughs> To our listeners tuning in, Karen and Matt just got a new dog, and we were zooming about something else. Cutest dog ever. So uh, she may she may make an appearance on this podcast at some point. But all right, to, to kick it off, I would love to hear the founding story about how the two of you decided. And you have a third uh, co-founder, if I understand correctly. I'd love to hear the story about where the idea for Trim came from and how you decided to go for it and start the business. Yeah. So. Uh Karen and I actually met in college, and at the time, uh, I was, I guess you could say, I was a commercial cannabis, uh, I was already in the cannabis industry, <laughs> if you want to, that's probably the right way to say that. Uh, I had a history of growing. The legacy market. Yeah, we were in the, yeah, we grew up on, I grew up in North Carolina, Karen grew up in California, she went to school on the East Coast, we met uh, in the live music scene, and uh cannabis and actually I was on your dad's podcast and this is partially what we talked about as well uh amazing yeah but uh very into the live music scene cannabis and live music go together very well uh so we were I was participating in the legacy market uh I had a background in growing uh in that manner as well and then uh after Karen and I graduated we moved to California uh I got into tech and eventually Prop 64 came on the ballot in California and Karen and I, and as well as Benjamin, our, our third co-founder, had the idea of this might be a good idea to marry the uh, background that I had in commercial cannabis cultivation and the uh, love of cannabis that Karen had. And our third co-founder, Benjamin, also worked with me at uh, the tech company I was working at. He used to work on a farm in Mendocino. So kind of like... All three said, "Let's." This was 
around 2016, we said, let's start investigating the market, see if there's anything that we could do to help help out the industry. Uh, with our experience in cultivation, it seemed like that was a natural place to start. And so we called starting in 2000, I guess this is in November of 16, uh, basically throughout 17, we started attending conferences, interviewing growers, trying to figure out what problems they had. And uh, by about March of 18, we had we felt confident enough that there was there was really something we could do. Uh, so we quit our jobs and we went full time and started building what Trim is now. The the thing that we kind of found all three of you yeah all, all three, three of us, us. quit qu- quit your jobs and went for it. Yeah, I was I was actually staying at home with our son at the time, but I will say something that just came to my mind listening to Matt. I always thought that Matt and Benjamin bought or brought the kind of legacy participation in that experience to the table, but I did sling a couple eights via Matt in college. So technically I did participate in the legacy market as well. She's being modest. Sell seven eights, keep the eighth eighth for free was my favorite economics lesson. So that, like, I just (laughs) just wanted to throw that out there. She's being modest. She sold quite a bit of weed for me. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You were very very involved uh, in the industry in college as well. So that needs to be on the record for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And growing up in San Diego, it was I was very much in that kind of SoCal cannabis culture. I was on the sailing team and like it may come as a surprise, but like this, like those were the biggest stoners of them all over like the skaters, the surfers, like those kids smoked pot and I was one of them. So I've the always sailors. Loved, <laughs> the sailors, dude. Uh, San Diego sailors, like they know how to have a good time. Lots of reggae music, getting out on the water, like there's nothing better. But I've definitely always had a love for cannabis. And like I mentioned, I was at home with our son at the time. I do have a marketing background and always had a lot of passion for the plant, kind of always stayed up on legalization, what was happening, um, you know, statewide with medical markets, got my medical card as soon as I could. Um, So when it became like a real thing that we were actually going to create a business and jump in the industry, I was full, like fully gung-ho, Matt, Benjamin, let me, you know, dust off my marketing knowledge and let me help out and just prove myself. And so, yeah, they were, they were amenable to that. So it's 2018, you all quit your jobs, you're going for it. What happens next? Yeah, we did a lot of talking to growers. We did a lot of listening, actually. I think that's the most important thing. Like we knew we wanted to launch an app. We knew we wanted to have something to kind of help them come up, sophisticate, come up with the times, track better data, have real software, right? Like everything's kind of underground. Everything was pen and paper. No historical data to really look back on and see what did we do? How can we improve? Uh, I mean, ton of data, but not really actionable, right? So we got out there. We went to conferences. We went to as many cultivation facilities, outdoor, indoor, you know, licensed, unlicensed, anyone who would talk to us and let us in, like we were so grateful to learn from them. Um, and over, you know, six, six, eight months, we really honed in. It took less time than that, but you know, the product continues to evolve. But we started really zeroing in on what the <laughs> problems we were going to solve were. Um, and we right. learned it directly from talking to growers. They needed help managing their teams. They needed just better uh, tools to track data and, and then compliance is obviously a huge piece too. Like the compliance piece is, it's complicated. It's time consuming. Um, so yeah, we, we wanted to help growers solve problems. Yeah. So 2018, we quit our jobs that we mentioned. Now we're going from highly paid tech jobs to zero income. Uh, so we, we took out Karen and I, as well as Benjamin took out, uh, home equity loans on our houses to bankroll the company. So, we were paying, uh, we weren't paying ourselves, you know, we were 
using the money that we had taken against our house to pay for our houses. And uh, pretty quickly we realized it was going to take forever to just build this thing on our, on our own. So we started hiring like developers, things like that off of Upwork, paying people directly out of our personal bank accounts, you know, with our money that we had taken against our house. Uh, we eventually, we, with that cash, we got to a beta. Uh, but then, you know, we were like, what are we going to do now? So then we started trying to figure out with the cash lasted way, way shorter than we expected it to last. And yeah. We bootstrapped as long as we could. And then we, we realized, okay, we need, we need to talk to investors. Yeah. And I love that you shared that because there's so many people out there that just don't really understand how much risk is involved with starting a business. And for you guys, you're, you, you take out a line, you take on a line of credit from your house and you're going out there speaking to customers, coming up with an idea, paying people out of pocket, like talk about true 100% skin in the game. I just think that so few people understand the massive amounts of risks that entrepreneurs face. Everyone only sees the headline of this startup just raised ABC or this company just did this. So people only read about the sunny days and I can't imagine the stress that the two of you were under sort of rolling the dice for everything to start a business. Thank you. Yeah, I don't think we could have less skin in the game, but that's I think like why it's so important to we, to have great a great team, um, a great product. Like Benjamin, our other co-founder, who's not on the call, he's like a brother to me. I trust him with my life because you have to when you get into to business together, right? Especially taking on the amount of risk in, in this industry and in entrepreneurship. So yeah, it's it's uh, you have to love it and to, to continue to, to wake up with a smile on your face. And I also think the bootstrapping first and then going out and raising really does make a difference. You know, when, when we started... Vanced. I was. I definitely didn't have to take as many risks as the two of you because I didn't have a job and I didn't have kids and I didn't have a mortgage or anything like that. So you know, I certainly can't compare my own situation to yours. But you know, I think I always think back to those bootstrapping times, and it makes you appreciate once you do go out and raise, right? Because it makes every single payroll. You're wondering how am I going to make payroll, and you know not. Now, once you raise capital, it's it just makes you appreciate it so much more, and I think be so much more responsible with cash. So, um, just something that I wanted to say there. But I would love to hear the story of okay, you've now been bootstrapping the company with the, your home equity lines of credit. You have a beta out, and then you go out and begin speaking to investors. What was that process like? Yeah, <clears throat> I would say Matt's energy and, and focus and attention completely shifted. Right now, it's about getting a pipeline of investors and, and getting a good pitch deck together and just constantly nurturing those relationships because it, it's not easy. It's incredibly time consuming. Um, I'll let Matt speak to that because he, he, you know, I have to commend him. He is in a, he has been the, the person that, that fundraises for trim. Um, so he has all the knowledge there. I think coming from, so I worked at a company called SunPower, multi-billion dollar company. I was director of product management there. And <clears throat> I had to fundraise internally within the business for, for development projects. And I was pretty successful in doing that. Like we had development projects that were like $16 million projects. We would like go decide we needed to acquire a company. And there, it would be like, you know, 30 million to hundreds of millions of dollars. So I thought that fundraising was going to be a straightforward activity and that we would do all the things and go through the process and investors were going to recognize that we were doing something that was really cutting edge and, and they were going to be, you know, 
as soon as they I said hello, they were gonna have their checkbook out, and that was not the experience that we had. It was like pulling teeth. You had to fight for every single dollar that we got. It's it's honestly still that way. Um, you know, you you learn a lot uh, about your own business and about where your your strengths are and where the strengths of your team are and where the strengths of your competitors are pretty, really quickly in the fundraising process. Uh, and you also learn like <clears throat> what to say and what not to say. Luckily for me, I got many, 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 many experiences talking to, many uh, <laughs> talking to investors. So I had a lot of learning opportunities because I mean, I think probably the first hundred investors we talked to, it was like, this is interesting, but like come to me once you have this and like everybody wanted something different. But um, we did a friends and family round uh, on a safe. We ended up meeting our first institutional investor while the safe was open. For those that don't know that are listening, safe stands for uh, structured agreement for future equity. It's saying, you know, we're not going to issue equity yet. You give us some money. And then once we set a valuation on the business, we'll, we'll issue equity. So uh, during the safe, we met our first institutional investor. So we ended up kind of combining a friends and family round with our first VC and then uh, Right during that same time period, we met our second institutional investor who decided that we actually needed to raise more money and that the safe wasn't enough. And they uh, gave us a term sheet for a preferred round. So we did a a series seed. That's when you actually issue stock. And then we've, you know, had subsequent rounds since then. We just recently did another round with a mutual investor that we share with banks, Delta Emerald. Um, So that was our most recent preferred round. And... Uh, it does get it does get easier once you kind of like get in the network. I think one of the things that I learned uh, from the fundraising process was that I don't. We never got a single check from cold outreach. I should have focused on like building my network of other entrepreneurs that had investor relationships. Uh, you've been gracious enough in the past to help me out. Um, so have I? I hope I've made it. I hope listening to the story. I hope that I've made some intros. I would feel bad if I didn't. Yeah. No, you did. For sure. Okay. You you did. Um, So that's what I should have focused on, though, is really like building a pipeline, running it like a sales pipeline and looking for opportunities to get intros to people that I wanted to talk to. Uh, I I wasted a ton of time at the beginning and we burned a lot of cash on uh, on trying to do cold outreach. Cold outreaches. I totally agree with that. Like. Um, actually, Ryan Smith from LeafLink, when we, we had never raised before, and Ryan introduced me to all the first potential sets of investors. So, And that's why I do think having a really close network of other founders, one, it's important just for your own mental sanity, right, to talk to other people and say, you're dealing with this, I'm dealing with this. But two, I mean, the warm introductions to investors, I could not agree more with what Matt's saying. So for people listening out there, I think these VCs are getting bombarded with cold emails. And so I would look up companies that they've invested in and try to network your way into becoming friendly with those founders and asking for the warm intro. I think that's a great learning and takeaway there. Any other big learnings and takeaways from the first time raising venture capital? Because so many people out there you know, have never done it before and are thinking about doing it. Well, one thing I would say, I don't know if I have a great answer to that one, so I might punt that one to Matt, but one thing I did want to add is we did meet our first VC at MJ BizCon. Um, So there are a ton of investors at cannabis events. You know, obviously there's all different types of events. MJ BizCon is a really big one and it's kind of hard, you know, it's like a 
the the diamond in the rough or whatever, just because there's so many people or like the grain of sand, but you got to find the right people, right? But we were lucky. Um, he walked right into our booth. I connected with him, Andre from Silverleaf, shout out Andre and Doug. Um, and they were the one that wrote us our first VC check. And once you get that first check, it's like you have some credibility, right? So now you finally, you have a little bit of traction. And then those investors, they're incentivized to make introductions, right? Because they want the company to succeed. So I uh, just wanted to throw that out there, that events are great for for uh, building new investor relations if, if you maybe don't have a big network of founders yet. And Karen, you talked about how in the beginning of building your business, you attended so many events and conferences, and that's a big way that you put yourself out there and met people and asked questions. I love the point that you made around, we didn't go out into the market and say, boom, here's our solution, this is what we're doing. You went out there and asked a ton of questions, found the exact problem and built around it. I think that's another incredible tip that we shouldn't overlook of asking the questions. I mean, that's what being a founder is, solving people's problems. Um, and any other tips for people on going to the conferences and getting those meetings set up in order to ask questions and identify the problem you're solving? It's really interesting thing about events is that <clears throat> it's hard to meet people. Like the booth is a really nice central location. So we actually, before we even had an app, we had rough prototype we got a booth we threw up some banners and we set up some ipads and we had growers kind of wandering into the booth and we would show them what we had we we're like here's here's this app uh we kind of like embellished that it was further along than it actually was uh <laughs> but they we they poked a ton of holes in it we it was in palm springs you know it's like a nine hour drive back to san francisco after the conference we all had our notes about everything all these growers had had recommended that we should be focused on instead of thing that we had just presented that we were focused on. And by the time we got back to the Bay Area, we all rode together um, as we typically do because we're super cheap, uh, cheap. <laughs> conservative, <laughs> cash flow conservative. Um, the, uh, we, we rode together and, and we were just spitballing literally for like nine hours. And by the time we got back to the Bay, uh, the product had completely transformed. And the, we, the next day we sat down, we whiteboarded everything out. And, uh, you know, so yeah, to your point, listening, really making sure that you're solving, you're not, you don't want to be a solution looking for a problem. You need to make sure you're actually solving something that your customers like face on a daily basis. One other thing on that is, uh, once you have some customers, like survey them, we did one survey that was really eye opening for us. I can't, it's a, it was a product fit survey pretty early on. Um, and it was simple. And I like that it was simple because it only asked a couple questions. We just kind of cut right to the core of like, you know, what are they getting the most value out of and learned like for, of our customer base, like who would be really disappointed if they could no longer use the product and why that was. So once you get some users too, like definitely list, you know, inquire within to get that feedback from folks that are using your product and surveys are an easy way to do that. And I love that question that you asked and actually our um, former head of product did that same survey. If, um, if, if, if Vanks was no longer here, how disappointed would you be? And it was like very disappointed, disappointed, not disappointed at all. And then it gives people some options. And right, people that say not disappointed at all, they actually give you quite a bit of, you know, it, it stings a little bit, but you know, they, yeah. they, turns out they could live without you and here's what they would use. So I think that's an incredible question to ask. Thanks for sharing that. All right, so you get your first check in the book from Silverleaf, right? And that's Doug and he's actually, in, he's based in Colorado. I think I've I think I've met him a yeah. few times, and he seems awesome. He, he used yeah, to be in he's Miami. Great. He moved. He used to be Miami, but then he moved to uh, to Denver a couple years ago. Yeah. And so, so 
Doug rolled the dice, was the first check-in, which then was helpful in attracting other investors. So you, you guys get some cash in. What do you immediately do with the cash? Who do you hire? How do you spend it? How do you put the first checks into work? That's a great question. We've been, we've always kind of scaled slowly and been um, a little cautious, I would say, but you know, we didn't have a sales team for a really long time. So we definitely needed to get some people to sell their product. That was one of the first things that we did is like, oh, let's get some folks that actually know how to sell a product um, and customer support, right? We're building our customer base and it's a technical product and compliance is, is a, is a you know, big part of the business that requires support and knowledge. So, um, you know, make a more robust customer success, customer support team to ensure that we're implementing the product right, that we're having product adoption, that our customers are being successful with the product. Um, so, and then how else would you elaborate? So before we actually started getting cash in and we were still bootstrapping, we'd already found some pretty early uh, developers, most of which have stayed with us through the years. Um, so we already had kind of like a rough engineering team that almost everybody we found on Upwork. Uh, <laughs> then we, to Karen's point, we needed to get revenue going. So we hired uh, Neil Chow, who's our head of partnerships at Trim. He's been with us since the start. Uh, he worked at GreenBits and we had met him at some conferences and when we were ready to hire. He was a Trim fan. Yeah, I put he up a job. He slipped into our trim DMs really early on, <laughs> and eventually became our first and head of partnership. Yeah, our first sales guy and head of partnerships. Yeah, so I put up a job post, and we had already been friends with him. And like, he applied at like midnight, and I wrote him immediately back. And I was like, it was on like Indeed or whatever. And I wrote him immediately back. I was like, you want to work at Trend, dude? <laughs> You're hired. <laughs> so he's been great. Uh, and then yeah, we hired marketing on Karen's team. That's always been one of our strengths, I'd say, is marketing. We're like still 95% inbound. We, we cast some really wide nets, like the way we think about marketing versus sales is, you know, marketing, you're casting nets and then sales has spears. Uh, so you bring all the fish in and then salespeople use the spears to, to knock them down. And uh, we've, we've been really good at, for years, uh, you know, one marketing tactic will work for a while. As it starts to not work, Karen and Ella respond really quickly and come up with new tactics so keeps our our inbound really fresh and that's been i think one of our early focuses and continues to be one of our strengths which which of course helps the overall economics of the business if you're not having to spend on salespeople acquiring net new logos of i'm curious of all the marketing tactics that you've tried what's been the most successful in driving inbounds without giving away all the secret sauce. I was going to say without giving away the secret sauce to your competitors, but like, do you even have competitors? We do. We have, um, we have competitors. I would say we have one main competitor that we compete with on deals. You know, like it's, we go head to head. Um, and that's Arroyo. I'll, I'll say they're, they're a good competitor. I will say that they, they keep, they give us a run for our money. And I actually like competing with them because it's, it's a really good product. Um, so they, they produce a sensor, and part of our product is precision agriculture, crop steering, which is a big buzzword for indoor growers in the industry. But you touched on it a little bit when you teed us up. Um, how, how is our product helping people increase consistency and optimize yields? We do that through sensor data. Um, so that's a big part of our platform. And so yeah, that's our main competitor in the market. But I would, and I'm not afraid to, you know, I'm, I'm happy to share some of the secret sauce because I want other people to be successful. 
Um, but basically, like Matt said, we've tried a lot of things. Like I love in-person events. Um, I love social media. But what's really, really worked for us when in, when looking at the numbers and looking at consistent lead generation is a combination of SEO and, and really good gated content. So when I say gated content, that basically means it's... Um, you know, it could be anything from a white paper to a guide to a template to an SOP, but it's um, a piece of content that someone needs to fill out a form and submit their contact information in order to receive the download. And so you get their contact information, right? So super easy peasy lead generation. Obviously, you need to have good content that someone's willing to give you their email and phone number. And I recommend always get the phone number. Um, but so some of the pieces of content that have worked really well for us are some cultivation SOPs. We've written some metric guides, which just break down regulation for growers and just make it more, you know, consumable and easy to understand. We published a crop steering guide a couple years ago, um, which, you know, is really awesome to go to state of the art indoor facilities and see it printed out like brands that are leading this, you know, the state and, they're consuming our content. So that's really, really awesome to see. So yeah, really good content that either educates folks or helps them understand things that are critical to operating, whether that's compliance, whether that's just running a facility, managing a cultivation team. Um, so good content and good SEO. So when people are searching for cultivation software, people are searching for, you know, cannabis sensors, trim pops up. You know, that's the I whole was, idea behind SEO. So. I was just at NECAN this weekend or this this past week and I had my trim hat on as so I was walking around and I probably got stopped like eight times. People and that didn't like, happen. And people were like, Trim, I read your crop steering guide. Thanks for putting that out. And yeah, that, that was really cool. That know? didn't happen five years ago. We've been in this five years now. We are finally getting some brand recognition and we didn't have a big budget. We're not, you know, Amazon, Coca-Cola, Apple, whatever. Like we have very small budget. So you need to have good organic rankings. You need to have good SEO. Um, and you need to have good just branding. So people like looking at your stuff, your website, your logo, you know, it has, you want it to make people happy and you want to kind of convey the mission through those marketing assets. So, um, yeah, that's, what's worked well for us. That's an incredible tip. Yeah. So we kind of have a theme with our content too, right? So with the guides that we put out, it's like a grower's guide to insert topic. So like our grower's guide to metric, a grower's guide to crop steering. And it's, uh, that theme is nice because it's it's easy to build on. Like there's this new topic we want to cover. We're going to have, you know, a grower's guide to some new thing that we just introduced. So um, again, kudos to Karen and Ella. They've, they've really spearheaded all of this stuff. And we get told by others that we, you know, other in the space and, and other investors uh, in both in trim and, and outside of trim that uh, they're, they're really impressed by mar our marketing. And if you saw the budget that we have for marketing, it's even more impressive. So uh, they really do a good job with a, a shoestring budget that we. And, and I will, I mean, for people listening, I mean, this works. Trim's saying it works. I can tell you, we do tons of these guides. We do a salary guide. I mean, Karen, you mentioned that you've used it before. I mean, to your point, Matt, I'll be walking around somewhere and people will say, oh, I used your salary guide to negotiate my pay. Right. And same thing. In order to download the salary guide, you have to make a profile on banks.com. And so it's one of these things where it's not terribly expensive. You just have to be focused on it. And you have to give, in my opinion, you have to give people something that they want and need. So I was thinking about your, you know, you said your cultivation guides and your or your cultivation SOPs and your metric guides. I mean, those are things that people desperately want and need. And I and I think that where some entrepreneurs make the mistake is they're like, well, why would I want to build this thing? for people for free. And it's like, you're totally missing the point. You're putting it out there and you're going to get so many downloads and now you're going to be able to start targeting these folks for your, 
for your product and get massive brand recognition. And it's so inexpensive. Like, forget about putting a billboard up. Like, people drive by it and half the people is, you know, 99% of the people it's not relevant for. Totally. And that's just it, what you just said. So you're not just building it. You're not just investing the time for anyone, which a billboard is for anyone and everyone. It's not targeted. You're investing the time to build it for your specific targeted future customers, right? There's no better investment of time, right? So that's the way I look at it. For people that maybe don't have a content team or a marketing, like a huge marketing budget, how can people go about finding someone to like help them actually create their reports? That's a good, uh, good question. So I will say like, do look at your budget and see what you can afford because we work with, um, a good SEO contractor for, for a very good price. And all, and if you can't even afford that, um, then there are some free tools, but just do some research, put together the top, um, the most searched key terms that are relevant to your product or service, right? And then brainstorm some topics of articles that you could write. And then you can even use some AI tools. And we talked about this on our panel, which I've been thinking about because I just, it's so interesting the way everything is progressing with AI and stuff, but you can even use tool to generate outlines for you and, and pull uh, data from Google that, hey, on this topic, these are what other top ranking posts are. These are the sections they're including in their, in their um, articles. So there's a lot out there. There's, there's you know, SEO tools, there's Moz, there's SEMrush, there's Ahrefs. They all cost something, but you know, it's manageable. And a lot of things have free versions, but just do some research, put together a plan. And I will say like SEO pays its, its weight in gold, like, because it just keeps going, right? It keeps working for you. The, the rankings improve and you do have to optimize it, but it's, it's not hard. Um, so I wouldn't be, if you don't have a content team, like, don't let that stop you. I don't, I don't have a content team. I do have a marketing director who helps with a lot of our content, but we do a lot with just two people. So I wouldn't let that deter you. And I would research what are the tools um, and what are the steps to just get started? Yeah, and for what it's worth, our marketing team, same thing, is, is, is two people. And I think people say to us all the time, like, wow, your brand is so good, your content's so good, I'm, your website looks great. I'm sure very similar things people say to you. And I feel like people think we have, like, this huge marketing budget and all these people. I mean, two people can go a super long way. Um, and, and even before you can afford to have two people, just, like, bootstrapping and doing the work can take you really far. And I mean, if, if what Karen and Matt are saying doesn't convince you of that, then maybe you just shouldn't, shouldn't be an entrepreneur. <laughs> um, so, so fast forward a little bit to today, you've done some rounds, you're really gaining good traction in the market, you have customers. What are the big challenges that you face today? Of course, every iteration of the company, you have different challenges. So what are the big challenges that you all face as entrepreneurs and business owners today? So I'll be really candid. Um, we faced a really big challenge about six months ago, and it's what you touched on again at the very beginning, introducing us, is that it's so important right now. Um, capital is drying up. It's a cash drop market, right? We, we are, and, and we're a VC-backed startup. So when VC cash goes away, what do you do? So that was a big kind of a challenge that we saw coming up six months ago that we were like, we need to change. We need to kind of do change some internal things like the way we run our business and we need to get to kind of profitability and, and become more cash rich. Like we need more cash flow, right? So that means you have to change directions. You have to get new strategies. Um, and we, we kind of went on, we did this whole overhaul internally about six months ago, really focusing on accounts receivable, receiving money, um, setting up our internal processes to 
to, to get there faster and not be reliant on venture capital. And I think Matt could probably elaborate more, but it, that's, I think that is a challenge that we <clears throat> face. And I think it's a challenge a lot of companies are facing or will face very soon. And it does take some kind of internal restructuring to say like, okay, we need to run this business like a, a, a cash rich business now and not like we're not courting investors anymore. We're focused internally on, on the success of Trim. Yeah, we mentioned that on the marketing side, we're like 95% inbound. We are successful with the marketing that we have largely because of the processes that we built and the pre-sales side of our business and the post-sales side of our business, like once they become customers, just wasn't instrumented uh, thoroughly. And the instruments that we had selected were probably the wrong one. So we uh, decided to, uh, in addition to what Karen said, you know, really focusing on accounts receivable, we we were basically, we did not have uh, a personnel focus on accounts receivable. So we hired an accounts receivable manager who we recently promoted to our uh, head of revenue operations. And we also, uh, so getting the right people to, <clears throat> to focus on that really helped. But then, yeah, redesigning our internal processes uh, so that they looked, our post-sales processes looked more like our pre-sales processes. So we now run our, yeah, we're a SaaS business, so our our customers are all paying subscription fees. Uh, we it used to be that once a customer signed, we just had this list of customers, and that's kind of the wrong way to think about your customers. The right way to think about it is that it's a customer that has signed, and now they're in a new pipeline. And at the end of that pipeline, they we either they either renew or they don't. And so we're running our post sales processes like uh, a pre sales process with a, a sales pipeline. And now, and it's all based in HubSpot, so now we get to use all the great stuff that we were doing on the pre-sale side with marketing and focus on marketing to our own customers. And it's been awesome. Like it, it, We're increasing Karen says we, customer lifetime value, and that's something that we, we needed to focus on, and we're doing it. Karen said we did this six months ago. It's really been that we started it six months ago, we're, and we've been working on it for six months. <laughs> uh, and we're now reaping some of the benefits. We brought over one of our salespeople to the post-sale side of things, and it kind of instantiated our first account management. Uh, and all of those things, like Karen said, we were, you know, we're not a very big ship. We're like a little Boston whaler, uh, but we were, you know, on a heading towards this rainbow with a pot of gold at the end of it, which was venture capital. And we'd always like been successful in that. And, uh, with the way things are going with venture capital now, we realized we need to turn the boat around and now we're, we're cruising towards this new heading of cash flow positive. And if, if everything falls into place, uh, and we keep moving the way we're moving, that should happen this year. Well, I would say, thank God you started doing that six months ago because I, you know, it's, it's pretty crazy. Of course, we're recording this podcast on March 14th and on Friday, Silicon Valley bank crash. And as more data has come out, it's very clear that majority of VC-backed companies have continued spending like it's 2020, 2021, and deposits have, you know, incoming venture capital has completely slowed down or dried up in Q4, but people are still spending that way. And so I think we're going to see a mass extinction of tons of VC-backed companies. And it takes, to your point, it takes time to turn the boat. I mean, we are in the exact same camp of, it was very clear, you know, middle of last year, interest rates are going up. VC funding is going down. You may not be able to raise again. We cannot go to the end of the rainbow looking for uh, a VC pot of gold here. We need to turn the ship. And it does not just happen overnight. I think it's 
very easy for VCs to say in a broad stroke, cut burn, but like, I don't think any of these VCs actually know what it is required when you've built a cash burning business to just wave a wand and cut burn, and it takes time. So I'm really happy to hear that you guys have started the process now because we've had a lot of people on the show recently that are like just starting to think about this and maybe they have six months of cash right now. And I think those companies are pretty SOL. So, so happy to hear that you're on that path. We're trying to do the same thing and it's it's hard. It's like a totally different way to operate the business. You're right. It's it's scary too because when you think about, oh, cut your burn in half, like what, there, there's no easy way to do it. That means people. That means people that you really, that add a ton of value to the business. Then you think, okay, now we're cutting ourselves off at the knees just to increase runway. We're going to, you know, growth is going to suffer. So it is really hard. And like you said, it takes time to redirect and, and change course to make sure like, okay, we still need to be booking demos. We still need to have business coming we still need to be generating leads. We still need to be paying our server fees. Like th- things has, have to happen for the business to continue to, to run. And you, it, yeah, it takes, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work doing this, but that's why you have to love it. You have to love weed, man. You got to love cannabis to do this. You have to love cannabis to do this. And you have to love your uh, co-founders and colleagues, which brings me to my next point of what is it like? How do you guys turn it off at the end of the day? Do you continue talking about trim all day and all night? How has it been being a married couple and co-founders? <laughs> Honestly, like if I, if Karen wasn't a co-founder of this business, I think it would have been more detrimental. That is so funny. That's literally what I was going to say, Carson. I've never said that before. And I was just thinking, I think if I hadn't jumped in with Matt and Ben, like we, I wouldn't, I would be like, I'm out. Cause this is crazy. You know, like you, I have to be on this journey because it is I need him. I need him in the, he needs me in this. And if I, if I didn't get it, it wouldn't be good. Um, yeah, we would have probably ended up with a negative, a very negative outcome where like we bailed too early or we sold too soon or we quit because like not having her full understanding of the circumstances would be detrimental. And that's not like, Oh, I need to understand weed. No, you need to understand what it's like to run a startup. And it's, it's really, really, like you said, we don't turn it off. Like it's kind of impossible to turn it off. I mean, eventually one of us is going to be like, "All right, shut up. Like let's 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 stop. <laughs> you know, let's 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 change the subject because that's not sexy. Like cannabis, cannabis software just isn't infinitely sexy. So you gotta you gotta keep it interesting. But um, I will say that it, it we're very compatible. Like we I, we're like two weeks away from our fourteenth wedding anniversary. So we're we're good at being together. We're good at working together. Um, we, we genuinely like each other and our, our kind of, uh, the way we see cannabis and the way we see what we're doing is lines up. Like we're in it together and we've, and yeah, we've, we've always been that way. Like I was at Karen's 21st birthday, you know what I mean? Like we've known each other for so long. So I threw a drink on him. She did. (laughs) I just, I mean, it was my 21st birthday. I was just too far gone. We were at the dinner and she was already turned up pretty And he brought me a water. And and I was like, hey, she was like, will you get me another drink? And I was like, we haven't even gotten to the bar yet. So I brought her a water. So it wasn't actually a drink. It was water. But, uh, I... I anyway, for, I forgave her, and now, and now here we are. What are your kids? You have two. You have two kids, right? We one. have one son. One son, right? Okay. What? How old is he? He's eleven. He's eleven. What does he think about Trim and his cool entrepreneur cannabis parents? I honestly don't think he thinks it's that cool. Like he, he's so it's so normal to him. Like we've never tried to hide cannabis. Like I do think he's very proud of us. I, I think he's I proud think of he us, but I don't. I think like he doesn't get like you know we came from the time where weed was like. 
more taboo. It was taboo. And like, you know, the fact that we are now in tech and in cannabis, like we kind of came from that previous experience. So, so it seems cooler to us, but to him, it's just like what he's always known, you know, it's like he has. And, parents- and as we mentioned, we've grown weed at home and, and he's been around cannabis. He's been on cannabis farms. He's seen it in our backyard. He's seen it in our garage. Um, he sees his mom consume cannabis, you know, so like I and I always have throughout his life and I haven't really hidden it from him um, just because I don't think that I need to or I should. I'm just very transparent and, you know, we use it as an adult because it and it's legal and it's legal. Yeah. Just like alcohol. And even if it wasn't. Yeah. Whatever. But yeah, I mean, the point it's it shouldn't be. Yeah. It shouldn't be like taboo. It's we all have businesses. It's anything. No, it's like anything, anything. It, it just. Be responsible and and be kind and and that's kind of how I live my life. But yeah, so we uh, it's funny too because like there are certain circumstances where you're like should I actually reveal what I do? I remember we were in a parent teacher conference with his third grade teacher and she said, "So what do you guys do?" And we looked at each other and we said, "We run a software company and we sell to you know the regulated cannabis industry." And she goes, "Oh my my husband works for uh, cannab- this cannabis beverage company and." Uh, you know, it's we're in California. Obviously, it's pretty cool. Uh, pretty mainstream. Pretty mainstream in, in California. In Colorado point. too. Yeah, and many um, many states now. And I'm sure yeah. it's exciting. But that was, you know, you still you're thinking to yourself, or like you're like, am I gonna like get put a negative impression on this person's mind because of the stigma that exists? You know, uh, but then of course it just like. There was and no I'm issue. sure it's also. I mean, um, my dad was an entrepreneur, so grew up with an entrepreneur. I'm sure, and you know, I think that's probably part of the reason why. I wanted to do it. I think kids that grow up with entrepreneur parents have a just totally different outlook and appreciation for it. And it definitely motivates them to want to go out and do it. You know, there's, there's risk and rewards, right? Like my fiance's parents both worked at, you know, a really big company. Um, and they, they worked their way up and they had, you know, really great job security and pensions. And I'm sure they hear my kind of stories about starting a company and, Maybe we'll be able to make payroll next week and maybe I'll get paid and maybe we won't. And they're like, oh my God. And so I, you know, for, for Jeff, my fiance, I think that when you don't grow up with entrepreneur parents and then you kind of get thrown in, it's a little bit shocking, right? And so it's cool that your son's going to grow up around two entrepreneur parents and he can decide, do I want to do this crazy life and have like a 0.01% chance of uh, making it or do I want to go take a stable job and there's no right or wrong answer, but I think it's really cool that he's going to get to see you guys go through it. And obviously, um, you know, I'll be curious to see when he's older, if he decides to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, yeah. I definitely, uh, he is, he, he seems like he, he does have a, like he's always doing stuff that is like, he's always working on like his own kind of project. Like he's, he goes through waves, like, He'll work on video games. He'll work on board games. Like he's he's really into gaming, so that's one of the, you know. But he's all, he's definitely got that kind of like initial spark of entrepreneurial spirit that you can see where he's kind of like coming up with his own. He's like, look at this story that I made, and here's this game that goes along with it. You know, it's just it's cool to see. But yeah, we couldn't be more proud of him. He's a great kid. Yeah, I think we're 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 coming up on time here. But any any tips for? parents who are entrepreneurs or anything that you found because I you know I again it's just a constant it's I don't I don't have kids and I struggle uh which is like balancing my time let alone adding another human into the mix so 
I'll def hopefully I have kids eventually, and I'll definitely be hitting you up for more advice then. But what, what kind of tips do you have for uh, parents who are entrepreneurs? I've, I my main tip is the tip I, I mean parents. So I think the best thing that you can do for your kid is to have a warm and loving relationship that or with them, with your partner, even if you don't have a partner, just a, a warm vibe in the house. So people are comfortable talking um, and to have really good communication because it is really hard and you need a lot of help along the way. Um, so you need to be able to communicate and ask for help without blowing your lid and, you know, screaming and swearing at the person. So just, um, good communication. Cannabis also helps with that. Um, helps me be a little softer as a person, which is one of the things I like so much about it and more introspective, which, you know, if I do, um, if I do yell at my kid cause I'm stressed out or, or am I sassy to Matt? Usually if I like at the end of the day, when I smoke some cannabis, I'm like, I apologize. Cause I think about it and I'm reflective. Yeah. Um, and another thing I really like about the plant. So my two tips are good communication, always having a good sense of humor, right? No, none of us are getting out of this alive. So we might as well have fun while we're here. Um, and you know, if all else fails, there's always cannabis. I'd say also don't miss the moments. Like <clears throat> you can always reschedule an investor call. You can, you know, if you, there's th certain things that you can't reschedule. Like, so, you know, we, we both work way more than we wish we did, but I've made But it. we're here for our son. We're and that's another thing. Like entrepreneurial entrepreneurship does in our situation, I think in many and most gives you flexibility. And, and as a parent, there's nothing more valuable to be able to be at all the you know, baseball games, whatever it is, concerts, whatever your, your people do, like on the flexibility allows you to be more present as a parent. So you, you have to take advantage of that and not always be so, so buried in work. Yeah. I mean, I used to drive, I'd leave it before the sun came up and come home when the sun was down and spent very little time with the family when I was, when I was working at full time Sun Power. at SunPower. Yeah. And so, uh, although <clears throat> the financial return has been smaller at this point uh the the like personal game the life has, yeah. has been great uh that's something that you know is invaluable and and like i was saying make making that time it's really easy to be like i'm cranking on this thing you know your kid comes in you're like give me time and it, you know obviously you're gonna have some moments like that but like you know, I take my kid to every baseball game. I take him to every practice and take him to climbing to the climbing gym. Like, you know, we make, we carve out the moments and, uh, and that's so great. Like Eli, I'm going to plug He's going to brag about our kid right now. He just, uh, participated in his first climbing competition and he placed third against 55 other kids. Very proud of him. So, uh, wow. and we were there for that. You know what I mean? So it's, uh, it's, it's, and then also, date nights with your partner like we we you won't be able mm. if you bootstrap your company or your you know the cash situation is precarious you may not be able to afford it but as soon as you can um and even if you can't afford a nice dinner go have a picnic or go take a walk together like ha keep the intimacy with your partner especially if you're working together or if one is you know buried in work like just keep the spark alive listen to each other and, and spend time together yeah i really like karen's quote of no one's getting out alive, which is like, you know, it's a little bit morbid, but it's so true. Like, and, and I, I had this really kind of dark thought the other day. I was sitting, uh, like, at the airport, and everyone around was there. I didn't see any kids, so the number made sense. But I was like, in 70 years, every single person is going to be dead here. Yeah. Right? And, like, no one's, I mean, it's kind of a dark thought, but to your point, like, no one's getting out alive, so you cannot miss the rock climbing competition. Yeah. yeah, there's nothing. There's nothing like and shoot your shot, right? Like take, shoot, take your, the shots. Shot. shoot take your shot. Shoot your shot. And yeah. yeah, I saw something on that same vein of what you were saying that it was, it was 
like, I don't know, I spent too much time on social media, but it was like a meme or something that said, in three generations, nobody will remember you, live a happy life. And uh, it's pretty interesting when you think about it that way, because we're so worried about like impressing and what people think of and us. what people think about it. and it does none of it matters just live a happy life be good to people enjoy what you do yeah. and make sure that the people around you are enjoying what they do buy the ticket take the ride yeah. and and take the shot so in three generations maybe somebody will still be using what you built yeah maybe you will leave a legacy yeah exactly, exactly. yeah well, guys, this has been an awesome episode. We really, we really kind of went all over the place there. We, you know, we, from from tactical marketing tips to uh, some uh, deep stuff there at the end. Uh, thanks for thanks for going there with me. That was fun. Thank you, Carson. Yeah, it was really great. Thanks for the whole, it's always good to talk to you. Thanks for having us on. And for folks listening, we will see you back here next week for another big episode of the Proud to Work in Cannabis podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey friends, I'm Brandon and I'm Saba and we are your host of the Cannabis Hangout podcast, an educational platform to connect with the cannabis community and share personal stories while breaking the stigma of marijuana. Join us every Sunday at 7 p.m. to gain valuable insight with different perspectives from industry leaders, growers, and medical marijuana patients. This is a place to learn so much from different angles in the cannabis industry. So tune in while we break it all down.